This is no ordinary sub shop. This is Firehouse Subs. Welcome to Firehouse. Tired of overpriced lunches that underdeliver on flavor? Head to Firehouse Subs, where for a limited time you can get a $4.99 choice sub. Choose from a medium smoked turkey, Virginia honey ham, or roast beef. They're custom-made hot subs at a price ready-made to make you smile. Just $4.99, only at Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs, save more lives. Participating locations plus tax limited time offer prices may vary for delivery. The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. Arctic Monkeys. If you if you don't know the Arctic Monkeys, go listen, get into it. Fantastic stuff. I'm Victoria Jones. I'm in for Leslie Marshall today, and delighted to be. While well, Leslie is off having some well well earned time off, we have an amazing show for you today. We've got such great stuff. We're going to be talking about ISIS and how these wars in the Middle East are spilling over into other countries, and does this mean we're at war, at, at risk of like one large, messy war, or at risk of a whole load of small wars, or what, what is going on? Because it's not simple, clinical, and clean. It's not like that. We're going to talk about that, and we're going to talk about the trade deal in Congress and the TPP and the TPA and the, the TAA, and what is this? What is up with that? Because there's a vote coming up in the House on Friday that is going to impact you. You need to know about this. And it's very, very tight, very, very close. Is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? The general progressive line is that it is a bad thing. Is that true? And why is this so close? And why are Republican leadership and President Obama and some Democrats working together, and why are uh, liberal Democrats and far-right conservatives, well, not working together, actually, they're not working together at all, but why are they on the same side? Huh? Huh? Really? Yes, really. So that's going on. We're going to talk about that. So we've got some really fascinating stuff for you. Meantime, I wanted to touch on a few things first that, struck me when I was going through the news earlier today. You may remember a week or so ago, there was an anti, there was a free speech rally in Phoenix. That's what it called itself. But it happened to be outside a mosque during Friday night prayers. And it was the mosque where the two uh, terror suspects 
who attacked Pamela Geller's Muhammad cartoon drawing contest in Texas, where they used to worship, although um, the, the people at the mosque have disavowed them completely. So John Ritzheimer, who's an anti-Muslim activist, decided he was going to have this so-called free speech rally outside the mosque on Friday night during prayers. Not provocative at all. No. And not content with that, he decided he was going to have T-shirts saying F Islam, but spelled out in full. Yeah. And he was also going to have a cartoon drawing contest of the Prophet Muhammad. And they were going to give out prizes later at the local biker bar, which they did, as a matter of fact. Anyway, so they did all this, and there was um, a competing rally there saying, this is bad, we, we don't think this is cool. And it got a lot of publicity, and Homeland Security got involved, and it, 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 was, it was messy. And uh, he's... Um, Anyway, now he says that he's been receiving death threats. Really? Surprise. And he's now put a post on Facebook that he's trying to sell his motorcycle, quote, for obvious reasons, because he needed, quote, every penny I can get to buy more guns, etc. What is What? Exactly. What is the etc. exactly? More guns, etc., So he includes a link to Craigslist saying he's selling his bike. Uh, He says, uh, he doesn't mention his anti-Muslim rally on his Craigslist ad. He says that his life has been turned upside down and he could no longer afford the payments on the motorcycle. He said he wouldn't put his whole story on Craigslist, but he needed every penny I have to invest in protection for my family. Now, it just occurs to me, I don't know how many guns he thinks he needs to take on these mythical people who have allegedly made death threats against him. But wouldn't you think that one of the things that would be useful to you when you've got, you know, your death threats against you would be a means of escape? Just struck me that I'd want a speedy motorcycle to hightail it out of there. With my guns, which I'm quite sure he already has some of anyway. And it's up there for several thousand dollars, so I, he's probably going to amass a small arsenal. So that's going to be nice. Meantime, hearing in Congress today, the Republican-run House Ways and Means Committee Health and Human Services Secretary Sylvia Burwell talking about Obamacare. She wasn't actually there to talk about Obamacare. She was there to talk about the budget. But they decided they were going to talk about Obamacare because we're waiting for the Supreme Court decision on subsidies. And uh, Sylvia Burwell got into it with Ways and Means Committee Chair Paul Ryan about what the Obama administration intends to do if the Supreme Court, as many court watchers expect, strikes down these subsidies, which would mean about 6.4 million people would probably lose their health insurance because they wouldn't be able to pay for the insurance without the subsidies in the 34 states that uses the healthcare.gov website. And you may be living in one of them. So she 
actually said more than she said up to now. She said the critical decisions will sit with Congress, the states, and governors to determine if those subsidies are available. Well, that was kind of like a rag to a bull, because she's throwing it back at the Republicans when she says that. Because when she says with Congress, she means Republicans. When she says the states and governors, she means the 34 states and governors, most of which have Republican governors and Republican legislatures and also have Republican senators, many of whom are up for re-election in 2016. So she was being pretty political in this answer. It was really very interesting. Ryan repeatedly asked her, if President Obama would work with lawmakers to overhaul the law, quote, or is he going to put concrete around his ankles and say, my law or nothing? She said the administration is going to do everything we can to get ready to communicate and work with states. She said if Congress sends Obama a law that improves affordability, quality, and access, we are open to those things. So I think we're looking at a standoff right now. Then Ryan said, whatever the Supreme Court decides this month, I think the lesson is clear. Obamacare is busted. It just doesn't work. A no-quick fix can change this fact. Meanwhile, Representative Sandy Levin, Democrat of Michigan, who's the top Democrat on the Ways and Means panel, was about to blow his stack. He'd been simmering. You sit as armchair critics as millions of people have insurance who never had it before. You're livid because it's getting better. So it was pretty lively hearing. If you don't watch these hearings, some of them are really worth hearing and watching. You need to, you need to know the ones. I mean, you can usually tell which ones are going to be worth watching and worth getting out the barbecue and the drinks and the deck chairs and the popcorn and, you know the Mai Tais. You can tell. You can usually tell. Also today, the Amtrak train crash, a very weird development. The engineer, Brandon Bostian, who still remembers nothing, by the way, was not using his cell phone to talk, text, or download data just before the train derailed in Philadelphia last month. So now the mystery is just even deeper as to what caused the accident that killed eight people and injured about 200. The NTSB said that he did not access the train's Wi-Fi system while he was operating the train. So this is really weird because people were, I think, starting to think that maybe he was on the phone, you know, playing around, not paying attention. He wasn't on the phone. So what happened, we still have absolutely no idea. This is just really weird. And they've not found any mechanical problems with the train. So I just, uh, this is a genuine mystery, genuine mystery. And it's very, very peculiar, very, very peculiar. It's really weird. I have no more for it on, uh, on that view, except to say that it's weird, I don't get it, and there's something very 
strange. We are going to continue in just a moment, and when we do, we're going to talk about the risk of the wars in the Middle East spreading, proliferating. Also, what President Obama said today, or what the administration said today, in uh, expanding the number of U.S. trainers in Iraq to fight ISIS, what the implications are for that, whether that also could mean that uh, there's a significant risk of Americans getting drawn into the conflict. I'm Victoria Jones. Leslie Marshall, the simple truth in a complicated world. 888-6-LESLIE. Victoria Jones in for Leslie Marshall today. Leslie's taking a few days off. I'm delighted to be with you. President Obama is sending around 450 more troops into Iraq to train uh, Iraqi fighters. They're going into Anbar province in the western section of Iraq where ISIS has made recent military gains. And uh, so this is a very interesting development, a tactic uh, really, more than a strategy. Uh, strategy is something that he's been criticized for recently. But uh, this is something he raised directly with Prime Minister Al-Abadi at a meeting on the summit sidelines in the G7 in Germany earlier this week. And, of course, after the fall of Ramadi just recently, the regional capital of Anbar, there is seen to be uh, an urgent need to do something about this, particularly as one of the things that came out of this was that the Sunni fighters, who Ash Carter, our defense secretary, criticized, if you remember, rather notably, it turns out really were not trained. And uh, it also has turned out that al-Abadi's government, the Baghdad government, a Shiite-led government, has not been providing weapons, according to the, uh, the Sunni fighters, has not been paying them. And the Obama administration is putting a fair bit of pressure on the Baghdad government, saying, get on with it. You've got to do this. Well, is it going to happen? Is that going to happen? They would like to see what the Wall Street Journal said is, is a new um, Anbar awakening, like we saw during the Iraq war. Is that even a vague possibility where, where the Sunnis rose up? Um, and fought off al-Qaeda. Is that even a possibility? We're going to start talking about that, and then we're going to talk about some other issues related to civil wars in the Middle East with my guest now, Colonel Cedric Layton, founder and president of Cedric Layton Associates, a strategic risk and leadership consultancy serving global companies and organizations. He served previously in the U.S. Air Force for 26 years as an intelligence officer, attained the rank of colonel. He's held assignments all around the world and at every level of command. Thank you very much for joining us, Colonel. I appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure, Victoria. It's great to be with you. 
Let's talk a little bit about this announcement today, which, which we knew about yesterday, really, because the, the Wall Street Journal had it first. Uh, how significant is it with, with a number like this, about 450? Is it going to make a difference, do you think, in the fighting? Well, I think, I mean, certainly in terms of the percentage, it's, uh, you know, greater than 10%, so anything greater than 10% uh, in terms of the total number of advisors is significant. But I think when you look at the total number and the scope of the task in front of them, I think it's it's really not enough. It's not sufficient for them to properly train uh, whether they uh, the Iraqi forces, whether they are government forces, Sunni militia forces, Shiite militia forces, or the Kurdish militia. So it is a uh, basically uh, we are using minimalist approaches uh, to try to achieve our goals, and uh, that is not necessarily a recipe for success. When you say minimalist approach, would, would you favor a maximalist approach or, or like a, a middling approach? Whatever that. Well, is. I think that you know there. I, I think in some cases a middling approach is is probably best. However, each situation is different, and because we are looking at uh, ISIS advancing so uh, rapidly, so deftly across uh, the Iraqi landscape, uh, sometimes a maximalist approach is called for. So in this particular case. I, you know, while I normally am uh, is somewhat in the middle of the road, I, I would say that a maximalist approach is the necessary approach. Uh, something that, uh, you know, jumpstarts a training program or a series of training programs is, is really what's required, and really it was required several months ago. Uh, and it may be When you say maximalist, what are we talking about? Well, in terms of numbers, that's always hard to, to, to assess because you're looking at, uh, you know, the, the type of terrain, the type of soldiers, uh, the, uh, the types of militias that you're dealing with. Uh, but the possibility of something like, uh, you know, five to 10,000 uh, troops total uh, would be, uh, you know, uh, somewhere on the order of about right for a scenario like this if the mission is confined to just training uh, the Iraqis. And by that, I mean all of the different elements that we're, that we're talking about. But somewhere between uh, five and 10,000, probably with more at the, at the 10,000 level. But these, these people, you know, the people that we send, would have to have had experience uh, in that area, or at least be supervised uh, by NCOs, non-commissioned officers who have that experience, who understand a bit of the culture, a bit of the ways of the Iraqis, uh, so that the training uh, is absorbed as quickly as possible. And that uh, that is something that uh, you know is is not necessarily part of what is being planned. I'm afraid it's, it's an enormous uh, number of people, but in terms of getting it done fast, and of course. We're going to take a quick break, so let's talk about that when we continue. If you don't get it done fast, in the meantime, you've got ISIS making more and more gains, so then you might need to get more and more people in order to counteract that. We will continue more with Colonel Cedric Layton coming up. I'm Victoria Jones. Marshall today. Glad to be with you. Joined by Colonel Cedric Layton, founder and president of Cedric Layton Associates, a strategic risk and leadership consultancy serving global companies and organizations. We're talking 
about ISIS, and we're talking about uh, the risk to U.S. troops as the president announces another 450 training troops are going into Anbar province. We're also talking about uh, related issues to that. Uh, Colonel, a question I don't hear being asked is how willing are these Sunni fighters to, who are not fighters when they're being trained. I, could, I don't know what they are. Maybe they're um, dentists. You know, I don't know. Uh, how willing are they to fight, actually? Well, that's an excellent question, Victoria. So I think you have to break it down. Uh, you know, again, it depends on you know where they are from within uh, you know Unbar province or any of the neighboring provinces. Uh, you know, who they are, what their backgrounds are. Um, if their livelihoods are threatened, uh, then, you know, the proverbial doctors, dentists, and lawyers that show up for these things, uh, and, of course, the farmers uh, and uh, construction workers as well, would be pretty willing to fight. Uh, and, in fact, when you look at the Unbar Awakening, uh, which uh, is also called the Sunni Awakening in Iraq um, during the, uh, you know, the 2007-2008 period, uh, that uh, really showed a, a significant willingness on the part of those forces or the members of those forces to fight. Uh, so you won't have the same dynamic uh, that uh, Secretary Carter, Defense Secretary Carter, referred to when he basically criticized the Iraqi armed forces for uh, turning and running from Ramadi. Uh, it's a very different, um, very different scenario. But one of the things that people, I think, fail to look at is the fact that many Arab societies are fairly hierarchical and they will do things based on the direction of their leaders. And the leaders that they pay attention to are the tribal leaders, not the national leaders, not uh, leaders of political parties necessarily, uh, but they will definitely pay attention to the tribal leaders and the religious leaders. It's uh, basically a tribal clan structure first and foremost, and that makes a big difference. If the leaders of those clans and tribes can be, can be convinced, if those leaders can be convinced, then we will have a very viable fighting force against ISIS. Uh, but th that fighting force would have to be equipped, would have to be trained, uh, or at least the training would have to be refreshed. Uh, and those are the kinds of things that you'd have to look at. But it is a very difficult problem and uh, is something that uh, uh, you, know, you, you definitely have to take into account when you plan something like this. So that brings me to the, to the next thing, which is that President Obama was um, apparently muscling um, Prime Minister um, al-Abadi at the G7 summit, on the sidelines of the G7 summit, over this whole question of um, actually paying the people who are already fighting, the Sunnis who are already fighting, which is always a thing to do, you know, I think, um, and providing them weapons. Because, you know, if you've got ISIS militants coming at you with... Um, oh, I don't know, with swords and guns and uh, God knows what else. It's nice to have something other than a spoon. Yes, uh, most certainly. And, uh, you know, spoons don't do too well against uh, any of those weapons, particularly against bullets or grenades or the worst-case bombs. And uh, one of the things that really affected the outcome in Ramadi was the fact that ISIS used a completely different tactic 
Uh, in essence, what they did was they took uh, the Humvees and other military uh, uh, vehicles that they had captured from the Iraqis, U.S.-made military vehicles, by the way. Uh, they, ca- they captured those, and they turned them into what's known as uh, vehicle-borne explosive devices. And that's what they used in large measure to go after uh, the troops. And, uh, you know, quite frankly, uh, the troops that were defending Ramadi had to go through hell. And, 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 and they used the sandstorm. And, this, and they used the sandstorm, exactly right. So you have, you know, a new tactic coupled with a, uh, you know, the clear, taking clear advantage of the weather, uh, which is, you know, classic, uh, you know, classic military employment of force. And that is something that, uh, you know, is, is very, very difficult to fight against. It can be done if you know what to look for and if you're equipped for it. But if you're not equipped for it, don't know how to look for it and don't have the intelligence, then you're going to have some significant issues. And that, that's what the Iraqi forces were dealing with. So they're, you know, to, uh, to uh, counteract what the secretary has, has said, they are, in fact, very brave people. The problem is they didn't get the support. And it goes to your point about the Sunnis being paid. Uh, it's also elements of the regular Iraqi armed forces uh, where there is a lot of corruption within the higher ranks. Many of the officers hold the positions because of political patronage as opposed to actually having ability in the combat arms. And that is a recipe for complete disaster. Uh, Prime Minister Abadi was, you know, is, was brought in basically to clean that kind of stuff up. But uh, it's something like that is a, a very, very long process, and we don't have the time that a process like that would normally take. So are there any signs that he's doing anything about it? Because I don't get the impression that he is. You know, there were some signs at the very beginning, Victoria, that he was going to do something about it. But as you, as you would say, talk is cheap. And, uh, you know, action is, uh, is something that is much more prized. And, uh, you know, in these kinds of situations, it looks to me as if there was more talk than action. I think he did make some attempts to, to clean things out. There were some, uh, there was some movement of senior military officers, which uh, had a lot of promise, uh, but it wasn't fast enough and sufficient enough to make a difference in the face of ISIS. And that, uh, that's what we're dealing with here. We're dealing with somebody who I think at least gave it a try, uh, but uh, it, it didn't uh, go very far. And then, of course, he's uh, also beholden not just to uh, the tribes that got him into power, uh, but he's beholden a bit to the United States, but more importantly, he's also beholden to the Iranians. And that is a completely different dynamic. And uh, you know, if he listens to them, and he does, uh, then uh, the outcome may not be exactly what we want. And, and that always has to be factored in. Yes, because, because they always have to be factored in. That is so true. That's right. What, what, what's going on with Iran is always underneath the surface. That is true. And the Iranians, Victoria, the Iranians you know, are playing a long game here. Uh, they are masters at strategy. Uh, they are not necessarily... Uh, the world's most effective implementers of strategy, but at least they have one. And uh, what they're basically doing is they are trying to reestablish themselves as a center of power, at least regionally, uh, potentially, you know, with further aspirations than that, but certainly regionally. Uh, everything that they're doing is designed to unbalance the Sunni forces that are that they perceive to be arrayed against them. Certainly, uh, you know, make the United States less of a factor in the Persian Gulf region, and in essence, create an opening for themselves so that they have 
not only a greater degree of security for Iran, uh, but they also want to create a zone of buffer states that will protect Iran from encroachments from other groups. And you know, the one thing that we have in common right now is that we both oppose ISIS. Uh, other than that, there are certainly uh, things that uh, you know, would still need to be worked out between, uh, between Iran and the U.S., uh, to put it very mildly. Yeah, very mildly. Um, th- I saw an article this morning in the Independent, the uh, British newspaper, on uh, 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 a senior Australia politician, I think it was the foreign minister, she was saying that there is major concern, and the Australians have intelligence about this, um, that they believe that, the, that ISIS may have enough material now to produce a dirty bomb. Well, that is, has always been a concern among uh, intelligence agencies who have been following ISIS. Uh, so far, at least uh, you know, in semi-public fora, the United States has not co- corroborated anything like that, and there is some debate within intelligence circles as to whether or not that is uh, you know, a true, true capability that they have. But I think it is safe to say this. Uh, ISIS is definitely working towards something like that, and it is not beyond the realm of the possible, given the fact that they uh, have uh, looked at and, and taken control of chemical weapons stockpiles in Syria, and also, uh, you know, what uh, in terms of expertise, uh, they also have uh, some people in Iraq, from Iraq uh, in their ranks that uh, do know something about chemical weapons. Uh, and the production of things like dirty bombs. So uh, it is a distinct possibility, and it is something not to be taken lightly. And I would say that you know, if we do uh, look at the planning and the long-term strategy for something like this, that is something that absolutely must be taken into account. Why do you say long-term? Why, why wouldn't we think that this might be something that they do in the short term? Well, that's uh, the reason I said long-term in this case was because I don't think that politically... Uh, it, we will get involved uh, in the the very short term. However, events may change that uh, that dynamic. And by involved, I mean uh, you know putting combat boots on the ground, not advisors, but actual combat forces. Uh, so that uh, you know that is something that uh, you know would uh, would depend on a variety of different factors. You know, some foreign, some domestic. Uh, but I do think that uh, you know it is certainly something that. If we are going to actually degrade and destroy ISIS, uh, which was one of the formulations that President Obama used uh, back in September 2014 when he talked about this, uh, then we can, you know, we can look toward something like a dirty bomb that ISIS would produce as being a possible scenario. So it absolutely must be factored into any planning that we do for any troops that we deploy forward. I think that in terms of actually being able to deploy something like that, you know, my personal view is that ISIS uh, is probably a few months away from actually making something like that happen. Uh, but uh, you always err on the side of they've got it now uh, when you make plans like this. And then, you know, of course, you act accordingly should, should something like that happen. The, the question of these civil wars spilling over into other countries, and we, we don't have a lot of time for this, but I, th- I think it's really fascinating. You know, we tend to think, okay, so there's something going on in Iraq, and there's something going on in Syria, and Lebanon's a bit messy always, and something going on in Libya. Um, well, okay, but 
does that mean that things are confined to those countries? And Yemen's a bit messed up at the moment, too. But, or does that mean that it spills over, and Syria, obviously Syria, or does it mean that, the, that it spills over into borders and then there is a risk of um, these wars becoming regional wars? Oh, uh, Victoria, there's an absolute risk of these becoming regional wars, and here's why. ISIS does not recognize these international borders. They don't believe that there's really a border between Syria and Iraq, for example. And uh, even within Syria, many people believe that uh, the Syrian-Lebanese border is non-existent. And they believe cases, in their own caliphate, so they believe in their own borders. That's right. They believe in their own borders, which in their view and in, you know, in practice, have been expanding lately. Generally speaking, they've been expanding with a few a few setbacks for them here and there. Uh, but you know, regardless of what's being said, you know, by uh, various official entities, both in Washington and abroad, um, the key thing when you look at at something like ISIS is to understand that they don't accept the borders as they exist right now on the map on the school maps that we're all used to. Uh, we have to think of this as being, in essence, a unified entity that is a, what we would call transnational to them, uh, that is, as you said, part of that unified caliphate that, there's, that they're building right now. Um, so the actions that they're taking, the fact that they are uh, involved not only in the, uh, in the areas of the Levant, such as Syria, uh, Lebanon, uh, Iraq, uh, but also in places like Libya and even starting to show up in not only in Yemen, as you mentioned, but also in Saudi Arabia and even in Egypt. Um, these are very, very serious concerns uh, because they are using, in essence, a, a mix of ideology of a very virulent and potent ideological creed that they have, uh, coupled, of course, with, uh, you know, that it has uh, absolute religious overtones within the Muslim world, uh, but it also exudes power, and power attracts and also creates the conditions uh, for a, a huge spread of this kind of uh, philosophy, of this, of this kind of, of effort, uh, all across the region. And because it can do that, uh, it is one of the most dangerous forms of insurgency uh, that, uh, that we could deal with. And in essence, it uh, brings to mind uh, the, the types of insurgencies that existed against the Ottoman Empire uh, back during the period of World War I about 100 years ago. This is very similar to that. Those movements moved very quickly as well. They didn't have the desired effect for the Arab populations that they wanted at the time. Uh, this may very well be uh, the answer to uh, to their feelings of you know repressed uh, honor, repressed nationalism, all of those things, and a nationalism of a different type, not of the European variety. And that's that's really what we're looking at here. We're looking real at something quick, we've very got, different. We've got, about a, we've got about a minute left. Real quick, do you see hope in the results of the Turkish election? I think there are uh, yes, there are some uh, areas of hope here because it gives the Kurds a voice. Uh, much to uh, President Erdogan's chagrin, uh, the fact that the Kurdish party did very well in the, the parliamentary elections in Turkey uh, does give hope to the Kurdish voice and may make 
it uh, a Kurdish solution, a multi-state Kurdish solution, a much more palatable outcome uh, for many of the parties, and it in essence may force the Turks into that position. So that, uh, that I think, would be a, a key and significant development. So there is a degree of optimism there. I'm glad we ended on one note of optimism. That was encouraging. Thank you so much, Colonel Cedric Layton. I really appreciate your time. It's my pleasure, Victoria. Great to be with you. Thank you so much. We will continue. Talk Radio News Service coming up. I'm Victoria Jones. I'm in for Leslie Marshall today. Delighted to be with you. We have a lot more coming up in the show in the next hour, so stay with us. I'm pleased to be joined now by Luke Vargas from the Talk Radio News Service. Hi, Luke. Hey, good afternoon, Victoria. What's going on? Well, I have to start with this news from WikiLeaks. This is the uh, organization which last week put a $100,000 reward out for someone who would leak the 26 unseen chapters of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. We didn't get one of those chapters today, but instead a rather interesting document, it's a healthcare transparency annex, further proof that there are just so many issues tied into these trade deals that we didn't even know about. This one is fascinating. It's got public health experts in a lot of countries up in arms saying that this will allow pharmaceutical and medical device corporations to sue countries if essentially they make a ruling about how to price a drug or a device that doesn't really enable them to have all the profits they want. So again, you know, this is the empowerment of corporations that many skeptics of these deals have been pointing to. Here we see it popping up in an, an entirely new uh, industry, this time in the, in the very lucrative uh, and very powerful uh, industry of, of making drugs and medical devices. And has the Obama administration had anything to say about this? Uh, they haven't, uh, and neither have uh, American uh, pharmaceutical representatives who have been ringing all day. They seem to uh, be pretending that these negotiations were never ongoing and that they aren't completely thrilled with the fact that their uh, companies, <laughs> which they represent, will have a little bit more power vis-a-vis -vis, uh, national governments in this TPP zone. Interesting. What else you got? Well, I want to just pass along a note from the World Health Organization about this outbreak of the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, also known as MERS, or the coronavirus, in South Korea. I hadn't even seen how big this thing has gotten, but there are now 3,000 people quarantined in South Korea, uh, uh, 2,500 schools and 22 universities closed. This was a disease, a respiratory disease, that spread from the Middle East. Uh, to South Korea. Uh, the government uh, is being urged now by the World Health Organization to, keep, uh, to, to not put travel bans on and to reopen those schools. Sort of another line from the Ebola playbook. Turns out so many of this, these diseases, when it comes to a public health response, are, are rather similar. Wow. And uh, President Packer has uh, postponed her trip to the United States because of it. That's correct. It seems to be a huge deal there. Uh, you know, it's, it's always hard to pass along this info for populations that are so concerned. But public health experts uh, frequently come down on the side of don't overreact. Let's not cause, you know, or draw false correlations between uh, going to school and catching this virus. Instead, just keep it simple, focus on hygiene uh, and staying away from infected persons and avoiding risky, er you know, uh, avoiding risk factors, which is being in contact with people who've been in these Middle Eastern countries for the past 14 days. So, look, they're saying individuals who are at risk, take responsibility yourself, and, and nobody panic. But, again, 
you look at those quarantine numbers, uh, 100 new infections today, three more deaths, I guess there are reasons there for people to still stay worried. Yeah, definitely. This, this thing's not going away anytime soon. Well, Luke Vargas, thank you so very much. Thank you. Take care now. Appreciate it. Luke Vargas from the Talk Radio News Service. So stay with us, folks. When we continue, Luke was touching on the Trans-Pacific Partnership. We're going to be talking about the trade deal in the House. Coming up, there's a vote on Friday. Well, there may be, there may not be. It's supposed to be happening in the House on Friday. Now, that's significant because... Depending how that goes, that will impact the Trans-Pacific Partnership. It's all linked together. Everything is connected to everything else, as Vladimir Lenin said. And we're going to talk about that, and we're going to try and figure it all out together, because it impacts you. The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. Delighted to be in for Leslie Marshall, who is taking some well-deserved time off. I'm normally to be found, um, but it's difficult to find me because you have to go through uh, extensive security in in a in a soundproof booth in the basement of the White House, as I'm the talk radio news service chief White House correspondent, and so I'm sort of in this booth where there's mold and there's occasionally mice um, and things, but that's where I hang out and a bit grungy really but that's the digs that we get when we're not being evacuated yeah yeah we want to talk trade because it impacts all of us trade is not a sexy word I mean, it can be uh, depending on the sort of trade that you're involved in but trade in terms of when you're talking capitol hill it's not that sexy but it actually is because it's big Big, big business. And there's a big trade vote coming up Friday. Or is there? That's part of what's got old Capitol Hill on tenderhooks. Mike Lillis knows all about it. He's staff writer for The Hill, and he joins me right now. Hi, Mike. Hi there, Victoria. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. Doing great. Thank you very much. So we want to uh, unpack this a bit and dig down into it for uh, those listeners who are trying to figure out what on earth is going on. We keep hearing about this trade vote and TPPs and TPAs and TAAs and it's, it, it, these acronyms. And I saw that it was a great story um, just a few couple of weeks ago about 
uh, you know, they, they went around and asked people on the street what TPP was, and people thought it was toilet paper, which I think is very reasonable. <laughs> well, yes, it's, it's acronym crazy up here on Capitol Hill, uh, and it is crunch time. You know, the Senate passed this bill. Obama wants to sign it. It's, it's one of his top priorities of his second term. And only the House stands in his way, and uh, and the Republicans announced today that the vote's going to be on Friday. So now everybody's twisting arms and counting heads, and, and they're trying to get uh, 218, the, the Republicans and the Obama coalition. Very strange group there. Let's stop right there, because this is where it already starts to get weird, okay? The Republicans and the Obama administration coalition. That's it. This is the strange bedfellows coalition that, uh, that that never happens up here on Capitol Hill. Um, you know, Bain, John Boehner, the speaker, Paul Ryan, the former vice presidential candidate, uh, they're buddy-buddy on this one, and that doesn't happen very often. So it's a very, very unusual political dynamic. Uh, you know, it fits Obama against his, his, uh, his liberal base, against his liberal allies on Capitol Hill who've been defending him over you know, Obamacare and all his long list of Wall Street reform, all the things that he's done and been attacked, uh, you know, every which way by the Republicans. This debate is very, very different, uh, and, and, and it makes it, it that much more interesting. And that's because this bill would do what in particular that's driving progressive Democrats up walls, all, all over Capitol Hill they're climbing walls, and that makes um, trade-minded Republicans grin. Well, here's, here's the distinction that we should make early on in this conversation. The vote that's going to happen on Friday is on something called trade promotion authority. That is not a trade deal. It's not a trade bill. Uh, but it sets the stage to ease passage of trade deals in the future by preventing Congress from changing them. Uh, Congress would have an up or down vote of approval but couldn't offer amendments. Debate time would be limited, and the Senate couldn't filibuster it. So, you know, this is lowering the bar quite significantly uh, anybody who's followed, you know, who's followed the Senate in recent years know that everything is filibustered. So to, just to um, remove that hurdle in and of itself is an enormous, uh, you know, it seems an enormous victory for those who want uh, the trade deals in the future. Now, the, the, the big one coming up is called the TPP. You mentioned it. It's not toilet paper. It's called Trans-Pacific Partnership. This is with the United States and 11 Pacific Rim countries, Japan, Canada, Mexico, the list goes on and on. Um, you know, they say it would constitute about 40% of, uh, of all global trade. So this thing is enormous. It's on, it's on par with NAFTA. Remember that 20 years ago? Oh, yeah. And, uh, and you know, the, the list of, of criticisms is very long. It's very, uh, very diverse. Um, you can start by saying, well, nobody knows what's in the TPP because it's secret. It's, it's locked in the basement of the Capitol. Lawmakers have access to it, but the public does not. But uh, they, they Elizabeth, can't Elizabeth make notes with them or anything like that, can they? I'm sorry? They, well, they can make notes, but they can't take their notes with them and things like that when they look at it. They can't take notes. They can't bring their phone. They can't take pictures. They can't do any of that. And, and, and that's the more lenient rules. Before, they weren't allowed to go in with an aide. Now at least they can bring somebody who's, who's a, maybe a little better versed than they are on trade law. Um, so you know, these, these are the types of complaints that have been happening for months and months and months. Um, you know, they say it's crafted by, this is all the liberal critics I'm talking about, crafted by corporations. There's going to be uh, human rights abuses in, you know, Brunei, Malaysia, Vietnam, uh, countries that have terrible human and labor rights 
you know, histories. Is that nothing true? In this deal, nothing in this deal would improve that is, is the complaint that we're hearing. Environmental concerns, you know, go out the door. Uh, the loss of U.S. jobs, wage cuts, um, you know, it would empower pharmaceutical companies to expand their monopolies and hike drug prices. Um, again, the list is long, but because no one's, because this, this, this thing is not, it's not final one, it's not public two, um, and again, the vote on Friday has no, is, is not the, the TPP, it's not the, the deal itself, it is just kind of greasing the skids for the deal, and that's why it's so controversial. And, and, it, and it would give the president more power, and, and that's where you've got, so you've got this coalition of you've got Republican leadership and some Republicans with, with the Obama administration and some Democrats, and then you've got anti-trade Democrats on the other side, and then in the House, and you had in the Senate to some extent, but you've got much more in the House, you've got um, Tea Party Republicans and, and some other Republicans who are saying, we're not giving the president more power on anything. We're not giving, we're not giving the president anything except the door. That's right. And, of course, that's nothing new either. You know, uh, there is a, a, a pretty significant contingent of, of Tea Party conservatives who don't want to grant this, this president any power. They, they've said for years that he has abused his executive authority, you know, on everything from Obamacare to, to the immigration executive actions that he did recently. They don't trust him to negotiate these deals. They say, let's wait 18 months until this president is gone, and then we can revisit this issue. But uh, we, we don't want to do this. And, and it's a thorn in the side of guys like John Boehner and Paul Ryan, who are really pushing hard for it. Uh, but the question is, how many minds have they changed? Um, you know, right now, it looks like they're going to need between 190 and 200 Republicans, along with the, you know, with the about 20 to 25 Democrats that, that people up here think that they're going to get. So, uh, you know, again, it's crunch time and, and they're twisting arms and, and who knows what promises they're making behind closed doors. But just talk, the fact that, let, that today they, they scheduled the vote for Friday. I'm sorry? Because that, that's, that's interesting, because my understanding is that there are quite, quite a considerable number of um, members who have not declared which way they're leaning yet publicly, and some of them may not have made up their minds, but some of them may well have made up their minds and are waiting for that call from leadership so they can say, well, what I want is, how many of those do we think there are? Uh, scores on both sides. Really? Uh, you know, those who have come out uh, are, are, are just a handful, actually. Not a handful. I shouldn't say that. Uh, we have been keeping uh, whip lists on our on our website. Right now, we've got uh, 30 Republican no's or leaning no's, strongly leaning no, and 116 yes or strongly leaning yes. So that leaves uh, about 100 guys who haven't said publicly what they're going to do for whatever reason, because they might want something from leadership or they just want to, uh, they don't want to get attacked in the lead up to the vote from, from whichever side. Uh, the Democrats are, are, are even more undecided. We've got uh, only 19 Democrats by our count have said that they're going to vote for it. Um, and we've got about 130 saying they're going to vote against it. So, you know, there's, there's, again, there's scores out there. We don't know what they're going to do. And that's why, uh, that's why everybody is, is so nervous about this vote. What kind on of both sides, do they want? When, when, when the leadership comes knocking in, like, tomorrow, I imagine it's going to be a very busy day, and uh, Paul Ryan or somebody says, okay, okay, Mike, um, we really want your vote, and you say, well, um, you know, Chairman, um, what I want for my district is, 
What kinds of things are they asking for? Well, you know, this debate comes right in the middle of the appropriations process, so it's convenient that they can, you know, they could add an amendment to an appropriations bill and say, okay, we'll give you a vote on you know, on your amendment that any kind of project, it could be a defense project, depending on the appropriations bill, it could be a transportation project, it could be a bridge, could be could be any of a thousand different things, um, and it might not even pass. But but just to get the vote might be enough to convince these people to, to get onto a trade deal that they might not otherwise do. So they can go back to their districts and say, "Hey, look at the, the power I yield in my in my conference. You know, you guys needed this project. We had a vote on the floor. Either it passed or it didn't. You know, we couldn't help you tell you what the Senate did, but um, but that's the power I yield, and then that's the type of deal back, you know, backdoor deal making that goes on when these debates happen on Capitol Hill. So, okay, um, given that and given the, the, the massive numbers that we, we, we don't know, when we continue in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to um, get out a crystal ball and uh, put on one of those little hat things and um, start predicting. So get ready for this, if you would, Mike. We're talking with Mike Lillis of The Hill, staff writer. We're talking about a, a trade vote coming up on Friday in the House, and uh, it's, it's significant, and it's a squeaker. If it happens, possibility it won't, and we'll talk about that also when we continue. I'm Victoria Jones in for Leslie Marshall. Stay with us. Leslie Marshall, The Simple Truth in a Complicated World, 888-6-LESLIE. Marshall today, glad to be with you. Leslie's taking a few days off. We're talking about trade and trade votes and what is going on and why these trade votes matter with Mike Lillis, staff writer for the Hill newspaper. And, you know, if you follow politics and if you're listening to this show, you do, you need to be reading The Hill. If you haven't read The Hill, then I strongly recommend that you read The Hill. The Hill is, Mike, just don't blush, okay? Well, you can blush, you're on the radio. The Hill is my go-to resource. Uh, the first thing I read, I get up at 1.30 in the morning for my job, uh, and so I'm at my computer by 2. The first website I open is The Hill because it has the stories first. Then I move on to my other site. Hill's first. Well, it's, and and it's, it's not like first and wrong, it's first and right. Hill is, I love the Hill. Okay, was that good, Mike? Did you like that? That was great. Listen, thank you, Victoria. We appreciate that. Okay. <laughs> we'll okay, take it. As long as I, I can come to the Christmas party now, can I? You got it. You get invites on the way. Okay. So with, uh, let, let's talk about this vote, um, if it happens, on Friday, because my, I, I would imagine that um, even though John Boehner, the Speaker of the House, has made some massive mistakes in the past and allowed votes to come up that have been hashtag fails, uh, he doesn't want this to happen with, with this um, Trade Promotion Authority vote. And there is whip counting going on on both sides. 
even though there are a lot of uh, people who they don't know which way they're going to vote. And if they don't think they've got the numbers, they're not going to bring it to the floor on Friday. What is your prediction for, number one, is it going to come to the floor on Friday? And number two, totally out on a limb, um, this is like predicting, you know, whether American Pharaoh was going to win or not. Is, uh, what, what are the numbers going to be? Uh, two great questions. Those are the million-dollar questions. And, and, and as you mentioned, you know, in any, other, in any other Congress, you could say, okay, they, they came out today after meeting with their conference, and they, they said we're going to have a vote on Friday. And in any other Congress, we would say, well, that's a good indication that they have the, they'll bring it up, they'll pass it, this thing is a done deal. With this Republican majority, they've had such a hard time passing even the things that are supposed to be the low-hanging fruit. And as you mentioned, uh, yes, but the things that the Republicans are supposed to be good at, they, they, they couldn't pass an abortion bill earlier this year. They couldn't pass the border security bill order earlier this year. You know, the, 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 the stuff that they're supposed to be able to pass very easily and push back against Obama, they couldn't do. So now the question is, if they say they're going to bring it up, do they actually know? Uh, they haven't counted very well in the past, and, and so we're all looking around saying, well, wait a minute, if they bring it up, do they really know that they've got the votes or do they not? Um, and the answer is, I have no idea. So, um, I, you know, if it gets to, down to it and, and, and they do stage the vote, I would say that, that it will pass. But if it gets to be Friday morning and, and you start looking at the calendar, you start looking at the we, – we get these email blasts from, from the House Radio TV gallery – and uh, if they start pushing the time of the vote, that means they don't have them, and that means uh, they might be in trouble. Boehner's already said we got to do this in June. We, you know, if we can't do it this month, we can't do it. So there is a window, and and it's closing very quickly. And uh, and you know, I, I hate to say you know we have to wait and see, but we have to wait and see because they they haven't been good at counting votes, and this is going to be one of the toughest of, of the year, if not the toughest of the year. So. Uh, you know, again, all that makes it fun to watch, but uh, but I don't have a crystal ball. If I did, I'd go to Vegas. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I don't think they know. I don't think they know. I don't think they know the Democrats. I mean, when you had President Obama, uh, according to reports in your newspaper, reaching out to the Congressional Black Caucus, really? Yeah, there is a sense uh, of desperation. And, you know, the reaction from the Congressional Black Caucus was, no way we're going to vote for this thing. You know, an overwhelming majority, you know, there's a handful of them that will. There's some uh, mostly regional issues happening there. Um, but, uh, you know, again, they, they, there's no greater ally than, than the Congressional Black Caucus of this president on Capitol Hill, and yet they, they hate this thing. Um, and so and an overwhelming majority of them will vote against it, no matter if they get the phone call from the president or not. So, um, yes, there are a couple guys in there who will be closely watched. But um, but whether or not one of them is the swing vote to, to get this thing over the finish line, you know, just nobody nobody knows. Less than a minute in uh, in that less than a minute. If this fails, what's the significance? Uh, if this fails, you know, this this is the high stakes thing. This if this fails, then the uh, then no one thinks that they can pass the, the you know again. This is the TPA. This is the Trade Promotion Authority, the fast track bill. If this fails, nobody thinks that they can pass the trans. Uh, Pacific Partnership, that huge deal with the Pacific Rim con countries, because either the Senate will filibuster it or uh, guys in the House are going to try to amend it in such a way that the other countries would reject it. So All right, this is kind of... We're going to have to end it there, but that, that is very succinct and that sums it up for us. I want to thank you very much, Mike Lillis, for the Hill. Thank you. We'll continue.
joins in for Leslie Marshall today. She's taking a few days off. I'm delighted to be in for her. Taking your calls as we continue for the rest of the show at 888-653-7543. That's 888-653-7543. Now is a time to get through if you have been trying to get through a lot of topics that are up for discussion. We've uh, got the whole Middle East topic that we wanted to talk about with you that we were talking about earlier. We've got trade on the line, and we've got issues, of course, from yesterday as well that I'm going to get into in just a moment. And uh, Reggie is in Georgia. Hi, Reggie. Hello, Reggie. Happy hump day to you again. And it's nice to talk to you and speak with you once again, Victoria. Good to talk to you. Uh, this is my second time talking to you, so once again, happy hump day. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Uh, I would like to say that, you know, you, you have people like, or such as Ann Coulter and Pamela Geller saying that you shouldn't give in to tyranny. But look at what, look at what they've done in general and look at what she's done. Pamela Geller has done in particular recently, you know, what happened with, what happened up in Garland, Texas. I mean, is it, is it, is, it's like, is it this she's trying to get attention to herself or is trying to have these people attack and kill her so that she can become a martyr and, and can say that, see, these people are dangerous. All Muslims are dangerous. When in, when in actuality and reality, most Muslims abhor violence, right? It's against their religion, correct? Ab- absolutely. Absolutely. Right? Most of them. Yes, absolutely. If, of course. Of course. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what Pamela Geller's motivations are. Um, I just know what the outcome was of the cartoon drawing contest of Muhammad. I mean, that that was the outcome of it. I don't know what the motivation was, but you know, you have a right to free speech in this country. But sometimes, you know, not everything. There's a very interesting uh, quotation that I came across. Um, a long time ago, I'm paraphrasing it now, but n- n- it, it's not everything that a man knows should be disclosed, and it's not always timely to disclose everything that you know. And, and uh, you know, so it, it, it's not always wise. Um, just, because, just, because, just because you can do something, it's not always wise to do it, and it's not always wise to say it. Is the point of that? It's like you might you might meet somebody and think, God, you're so stupid. Is it wise to say that to that person? No. No, and it's not wise to egg them on either. No, like that could eventually happen, and they might take it take you on or upon it, and may go through with it. They may act upon it. You know, right? Psychotic people. So so there's there's, you you one in in life one needs to be prudent. One right. needs to be wise. Right. And, and extremely very careful of what you say or do because they're going to take it seriously. And as I just said, they're going to act upon it. I'm talking about all people, when we're in dealings with all people. And I'm saying that we have free speech, but right. we exercise that however we wish to exercise it. But we can exercise it judiciously if we choose to do so. Yeah, don't be surprised that people are going to criticize on you for the, the, your words or your actions. These people, these exact same people, they all think that, that they're far away and beyond reproach when it comes to freedom of speech. I mean, it's okay for them to say it, but it's not okay for them to be, you know, to be criticized on it or appointed or attacked for it or called out and on for it. 
you know, what they, are they are they immune from reproach or something, or vulnerable to it? No. Nobody's immune from reproach. That's another thing I think we've all learned as we've as we've grown a little bit older, Reggie. Reggie, I appreciate your call. Thank you, Victoria. Thank you so much. Thank you. And Michael is in the Bronx. Hi, Michael. Hello, Hello again, Victoria. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Okay. First off, kudos to the last caller because he hit the nail on the head when, you know, we do have free speech, it's the First Amendment, right? But not everything you say is protected under the First Amendment. And they are already um, past court cases, criminal cases that, you know, show that. And the most notable is you cannot yell fire in a crowded movie theater, jokingly. So, you know, I just wanted to um, add that part in. But I definitely needed to follow up on the conversation I had with you regarding the McKinney case in uh, McKinney, Texas. And I cannot help but wonder if the racist female that instigated the confrontation had some kind of if I can call it a buddy-buddy relationship with the cop or now former cop that just resigned after being exposed on the video, only because that you have one racist attack from one person and, and was followed by an assault on her part, meaning slapping another individual. She should have been arrested right there on the spot. I know the thing about... Um, Somebody has to file charges. There is a thing called disturbing the peace and disorderly conduct. All right? I, I, I'm, really, I'm with you there, Michael, but, but, but I've, I've got to pick you up on what you first said. Do you have absolutely any reason to think that this woman, unknown, unnamed, has a relationship or had a relationship with Corporal Casebolt, or do you have any evidence whatsoever other than your own speculation, which you just put out there to all of America? I don't have direct evidence. I'm well, you haven't got indirect evidence either, have you? I'm, but I'm raising the hypothesis as a call for an for a special, I shouldn't say special, perhaps an extensive investigation. I want to know how in the world this cop was the first to get arrived at the scene, and the only thing he did was just target the minorities without even asking first what was going on, what's the problem, who called police, so forth and so on. I mean, I, there, I do have people... First. I mean, wait, he was wait. one of the first, but I don't know whether he was the first. But, but, Victoria, I do have people here in New York City, and there are cops that I know, and I did learn that there are some people, if they cannot feel comfortable calling 911 or for whatever reason, they and they have um, a number of one of their friends that happens to be a police officer, especially in that precinct that they live in, they'll turn around and call up the, um, the buddy, and then the buddy will come, and if necessary, that buddy on duty as a police officer will call for backup. But like I said, this, this I'm telling you, this calls for... Um, an extensive investigation so there as is, there is an in the I mean, there, there is. There is an investigation. So let's let the investigation go forward and take place and, and see what that turns up. I mean, the, the police chief of, of McKinney yesterday said that the guy's behavior was indefensible. 
It's indefensible, and I don't think people will find it enough that he just resigned. Like, okay, let bygones be bygones? Heck no, because there's nothing stopping this woman from provoking another confrontation. Well, we don't she know, what, that we so don't know anything about this woman. We don't know what this woman's going to do. We don't even know. You don't know because you don't have evidence, direct, indirect, except your own speculation. With greatest respect, you've got nothing on this woman. But she hasn't explained why the hell did she have to have to open her mouth in such a racist, hateful, and violent manner towards these people who did nothing to her. Who well, did we've not got we know we've got that, but we don't know that there's a connection between her and him. That's what we don't. We know. don't know. We don't know. I just raised the question. That's all I did. I, I just raised the question as a suspicion. That's a question, and 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 you raised it, and that's 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 a question. I appreciate that's all I can do. All you can do, and I appreciate that. And he Thank and you. he is keeping his benefits and his pension, and he may need them to pay off um, the amount of money he's going to be sued for. Is what I'm thinking. I appreciate your call, Michael, because he is going to be sued and sued. He is going to be sued. He is going to be sued. Paul is in Washington. Hi, Paul. Hi, Victoria. How are you? I'm fine. Well, there's a uh, weigh-in on Iraq. The thought occurs to me that is there a single one of the candidates, presidential candidates on the Republican side that, if elected, would not take us directly back into Iraq? And I don't think there's a single one on that now circus train of candidates that uh, would, would would resist that. I think that Paul. if... Rand Paul. I'm sorry. Rand Paul. Uh, Rand Paul? Yeah. Well, I don't know about that. I know what he says. Well, that's what he says. I, I can only go with what he says. I don't know whether he's going to say one thing and then do the opposite. I can only go with what somebody says. That's what true. Says. I don't know that I believe him. I don't, ne- I don't necessarily think that just because we have a Democrat that we wouldn't go into Iraq. But I think that if uh, if a Republican is elected, a president... Um, Next in, in 2016, we're going back to Iraq for at least eight years. You do? Well, for sure. Because, look at, at this point, the Republican Party is set to say, we're going to do it right this time, which means we're never leaving. They're, they're, the whole problem they have with Iraq is that we, we left. <laughs> you know, they didn't have a problem invading. Nobody's criti- Nobody, okay. Even, well, even Rand Paul isn't criticizing the invasion, I don't think. Uh, but... None of the other Republican candidates are saying that we shouldn't have invaded. They're just saying that we should have never left, which means that they want to go back. And that's, that's the way they fix the problem. And so when you think about eight more years in Iraq, at least, uh, we can count on another $12 billion a month, a month. Okay, so what's that? That's uh, I think it's that much. $150, $150 billion a year. No, I don't think it's that much. We haven't spent, it's not that much. It was $12 billion a month when we, during the initial invasion. And in Afghanistan, when we had forces there, we were spending $2 billion a week. So that was, that's $8 billion a month in Afghanistan, $2 billion a week. No, we weren't. Yep. It no. was $2 billion a week in Afghanistan up until we pulled out recently. And it was $12 billion a month uh, when we had, when we had 150,000 forces in Iraq, 150,000 troops in Iraq. It was $12 billion a month. No, it wasn't. Well... Okay, how much was it? Well, I don't have it in front of me, but it wasn't. It was not that 
much. It was a considerable amount of money, but it just wasn't that much. Okay, well, let me ask you this. Yeah. What What do you What do you know to be the estimated cost of the of the war, wars in Iraq and Afghanistan? I, I don't have the figure in front of me, but I read the figure. This I was reading the figures this morning. Um, the Iraq and Afghan wars have cost six trillion. It was a considerable amount of money. Right. Okay. Six trillion dollars. Figure that out by by month, and you'll see. But that that includes that includes medical care of wounded veterans, and as well. So, well, the cost is the cost. I mean, you can't say, well, that, those are okay costs because I'm not saying they're okay costs. But but are you talking? You sounded like you were talking about the cost of fighting the war as it was being fought. That's a different cost from the cost of paying for the veterans once they come home. Oh, not not necessarily because part of the part of the uh, part of the battle strategy it is as far as it is as far as politicians are concerned. Well, part of the battle strategy going back from antiquity is to not is to not kill your uh, not to kill your opponent but maim them so they have to be taken care of. It co- it's more costly to, and that's why the that's why the the IEDs are are so devastating because they a lot of people were more of our soldiers were we had 30,000 soldiers uh, uh, severely wounded, right? Oh, we, absolutely we did, and that, that doesn't even take into account the PTSD that we're either dealing with or actually not dealing with particularly well right now. But what I'm talking about, $12 billion a month, consider the supply lines. We got, a, we got a, uh, an 8,000-mile supply line. We have all the fuel, all the food, all the armaments, that's, you don't think that's $12 billion a month? Well, now, well, now you, you're expanding it like a piece of string. No, I'm not. That's, that's what it costs. No, now you're I'm, I'm talking about what it costs to go to war. it like a piece of string. But I think your point is that you're saying that if Republicans come in, they're going back into Iraq. But I think there's a bigger piece of this. It may not just be Iraq by that point. Okay, and okay. Then, then the other, next question comes up. We keep saying, uh, we keep hearing, Obama doesn't have a strategy. Okay, let me ask you this: Does Germany have a strategy? Does England have a strategy? Does no, France no, have my, a strategy? That wasn't what I was saying. My point was, it may not just be Iraq. It right. may also be Syria. There may be Libya. There may be Yemen. There Might may be the other. entire region. I mean, and and that's that's possible. But uh, and, 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 and that's even more reason why I think Republicans would go in. They say we've got to go in, and we have to use the Kissinger doctrine, which means the world will turn into chaos unless the United States intervenes. And this, I mean, is, something, this is something that voters have to think about as they consider their votes. And I want to thank you for your call, and I appreciate it, Paul. Thank you. Thank you so much. We'll take more of your calls as we continue at 888-653-7543, 888-653-7543. If you've been trying to get through, now is a good time to do so. I'm Victoria Jones. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE.
I'm Victoria Jones in for Leslie Marshall for a few minutes more. Leslie will be back with you next week. And I've just had a blast. I've just enjoyed myself so much. Taking your calls at 888-653-7543. Mark is in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Hi, Mark. How are you? I'm doing well, Victoria. I'm glad you're having a good time on the air. Oh, yeah. So I have listened to your uh, reporting for the Talk Radio News Service for years and really enjoyed that, as well as your Goats for the Old Goat program. I think you're right on point on how to help poor people around the world. My compliments. Oh, well, I appreciate that, but I, I can't take the credit for that. That, that, that credit for Goats for the Old Goat uh, goes to Alan Ratner. Oh, excuse me. I, I'm confusing. I, I apologize. You know, Ellen, I did want to ask you, uh, based on your very informed political opinions uh, and how opinionated we progressives or Republicans can be, what do you think might get young people in the country out to vote and increase our voting percentage as a population significantly more than it is now? Yeah, well, one thing that would that would do it, um, is impossible, and that is to make it compulsory. And that's impossible. So you can cross that one off. Um, you ask me you know, things, so that's one thing that would do it, but that's impossible, and I'm not suggesting it, but that's something that would do it. But that would not be a positive way of doing it. So you, want, you need a positive way of doing it. Uh, you, you, you've, you've got to make it something that is a positive thing. And, you know, you, you talk to young people, and I've, I've got a lot of friends um, in their 20s, uh, many of whom are not particularly political, but they look at it and they see politicians and they see people who are in with an eye for the main chance and they see people who are saying things and doing things that are different from what they say. They say, see people saying things and they're not following through. Um, they see lies. They, they see promises not kept. Um, and I also see people who are dis, disaffected of political parties, per se. So you, you're dealing with a system that many people feel is moribund to start with. And I think it's going to be very hard, to be frank with you, to get young people to really get uh, overall engaged with the system, except those who are already interested in politics unless they get attracted to a charismatic character or unless there's a particular issue for them. I, I agree. I think the, charis- the charisma and the, uh, the issues may finally bring the general population of the polls, but you're right, it does seem more of them, and unfortunately it seems like the corporations and the business interests recognize the value of their money and buying politicians, and I'm just wondering if we can ever break that cycle. Well, I mean, you know, I, I come from Great Britain, and uh, it, it, they're bought in other ways, but you don't have the influence of money in politics in that country, and you don't have an incredibly higher voter turnout out there. Um, so it's not only money in politics that turns off young people. It's politicians that turn off young people. Yeah, somehow we have to improve the quality uh, and the follow-through of the people we elect. 
um, and I'm just not sure how we can get that accomplished. But thank you very much. I appreciate welcome. Your I, appreciate, I appreciate your call. Thank you so much for getting on the air. Um, I'll, I'll just say this. I think also the partisan politics is, a, is part of it, that the, the very nature, and I don't know how you fix this within the system, of partisan politics and of parties makes it harder for young people. And, and that's a profound conversation that we don't actually have time to have. I'm Victoria Jones. How to show up with Coca-Cola energy. You're tired and you're thinking of canceling on your friends. Don't do it! Every time you cancel on a friend, a unicorn loses its horn and becomes a regular horse. Do you really want that on your conscience? Instead, grab an ice-cold can of Coca-Cola energy with delicious Coke taste and reinvigorating energy. Keep the unicorns alive! Show up every day with Coca-Cola energy. Energy you want, taste you love.